Hi everyone, Ashley Brown here. Welcome back to A Lap of Caulfield Park. This is episode three of season two in 2021. And my guest uh, this time around from the lap is William Mora, who is the middle child of the legendary, iconic Australian artist, Mirka Mora, whose exhibition is on at the Jewish Museum of Australia at the moment. It is called Mirka. It is tells her story, not just from a visual point of view, but an audio complete package as well. William was very kind to come have a wonderful chat about his family, such a well-known family, and also his mum's work, a bit about his father as well. Uh, so I really commend this chat to you. Put on your walking uh, shoes, uh, it's still beautiful weather outside, or get comfy on the couch with the uh, AirPods on. Sit back, relax, and have a listen to my lap of Caulfield Park with William Mora. William Mora, welcome to a lap of Caulfield Park. Uh, my pleasure to be with you here today, this afternoon, Ashley. Thanks for asking me. Oh, it's good to have you here. So the, we're here because the, the Mora exhibition is on now at the Jewish Museum of Australia in, in St Kilda. Your mother has been the subject of so many exhibitions over the over the journey and quite celebrated, I guess, in the, in, in the city. But what do you think makes this exhibition a bit different to some of the others? Well, this exhibition, unlike most other museum exhibitions, actually tells her life story as well as showing her art. So for the first time, we've uh, shown a lot of personal photographs, diaries, all that kind of uh, memorabilia that you don't normally see in a museum show. And it's actually captivating people. They, um, they're booked, I think, well in, into June now. It's unbelievable. There's a queue there first thing in the morning. And people love seeing all that memorabilia stuff as well as seeing her art. And there's a kind of murka magic, we call it. And they've actually also done a soundscape, which is hearing murka read from her diaries and stuff. So as you walk through each separate room, uh, you hear her voice reading with that lovely French accent. And it's, uh, it, it, it's uh, I was left speechless, frankly, Ashley. It was so uh, emotional seeing and hearing her at the same time and seeing her life as well as her wonderful art. So how do you feel? You, you tell me you, there's cues that's booked out till June. There's cues in the morning. How do you feel about that? How, must, well, I'm totally be... biased. I think she's a brilliant <laughs> artist. Um, <laughs> But she was, you know, also uh, an incredibly flamboyant mother to have. I mean, as children, she used to embarrass us. We, we actually once uh, took her to Myers and made her buy a twin set that we said she had to wear when she picked us up from school because she used to make her own clothes that were so wild that we, you know, we wanted to sort of blend in. As we hit our teenage years, we realised this is, you know, some lady here. Where did you go to school? Given you, you grew up in the city and lived in Collins Street, I, I imagine, for a good part of your childhood. Where, where did you guys go to school? I went to a school in Richmond called Yarra Park Primary, and then I went to University High School, which was in Carlton. My father was a bit of a socialist. I mean, uh, he thought the state should pay for education, so we didn't have any of that private school stuff. And, and University High School uh, still is, but in those days was you know, very highly regarded. You had to sit an exam to get into it. Yeah, we had Melbourne High to the south and University High to sort of north of the Arrow. They were very similar schools for a long time. I think they've gone in different directions now, but for a long yep. time they were almost identical. Yeah, so I couldn't play football, so I got into Mel into Uni High on uh, my academic results. Well, I think that makes sense. I think if you're back in Melbourne High in the day, if you weren't good at sport, you, you probably struggled. 
Now, yeah. I want to ask you a question that mm. people should know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, just to clarify, how would you explain, if you had one sentence or two sentences to explain Merca's art and her style, how would you describe it? She had this incredible joy for life and she also had to deal with the trauma of having survived the Holocaust. And my take on it is that um, her way of dealing with that terrible experience that she survived at the age of 13 uh, was to create this mythical, wonderful world of, you know, hope, resilience and faith through her art. And she inhabited that world and she refused to see bad in things. She only saw the good. And what's interesting about her art is that people who buy it never tend to never sell it. She doesn't make up what her contemporaries are, which is the auction market. Boyd, Blackman, Nolan, Tucker, Percival, Joy Hester. Uh, they're basically what the auctions, the secondary market is all about in Australia. Very little of Merkers comes up and people pass it down through the generations because it gives great joy and hope to people. There's always been a lot of children, dolls, childlike faces. It's a bit of a theme, recurring theme through her work. Mm. Is that, um, and often in rows and groupings, it's been interpreted by some as representing the ghost of the Holocaust. What do you say to that? Well, I agree with that. The one thing about Merkers' work, and it was James Mollison, the founding director of the National Gallery of Australia, who said the one thing about Merkel's work is it's always the people in the painting looking at you, the viewer. And that comes back, she's written about it in her biography when she was released from this camp in France the day before everybody was in that camp was taken off to Auschwitz. She recalled being uh, leaving the camp in a horse-drawn cart and just seeing the faces of everybody standing at the fence trying to pass letters and things through to the cart as it went past and somehow she's disguised that in, into this incredible joyful kind of thing but one aspect of this show the Jewish Museum is it really highlights there's one room there that I kind of almost call the Holocaust room which is just these faces staring at you and uh, the paintings are recessed into the wall and beautifully sort of lit but set back from the wall it's really profound and uh, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I agree with, with, with what you've just said. I think it was her way of turning that dreadful experience into something of hope and resilience. Did she talk about it much growing up? No, no, very little. I mean, she talked about it more when she started to write her autobiography called Wicked But Virtuous. Sort of snippets would come out, but then my father never spoke about his war experiences. He was in the French resistance. So, no, she was of that generation. She embraced her new country, Australia. She loved it here because it was so far away from that French experience. She never actually forgave the French because it was the French policeman who came and arrested her family. And she never wanted to really go back to France. She made Australia her new home and, and loved it here. But obviously, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a lifelong thing to live with, having survived the Holocaust. I mean, she was proudly culturally Jewish. She wasn't um, overly religious in, in, in the orthodox sense, but she was proudly Jewish. Tell me about what, what propelled her. She she had this ability to want to bring things to life. What what drove her, motivated her, what to just sort of made her want to go from project to project, piece she of art to piece of art? I've always said if I had a tenth of her energy, I'd be a tycoon. She just had this incredible drive and... Uh, she read a lot. I mean, people couldn't believe because she, she didn't finish her schooling. She had this incredible thirst for knowledge and she, her library was quite phenomenal. She knew so much about so many different subjects and she'd read about physics and about colour theory, about all these 
different kind of things. And whenever she took on a new project, and you, you pinpointed it, then she loved to tackle new projects, be they mosaics, be they public art, be they, uh, you know, she made dolls, she did soft sculpture, she did pastel, charcoal, pen and ink drawing, painting. She just wanted to explore everything. And every time she took on a new medium or subject or commission, she would immediately go out and buy all the top books on that subject. So when she did uh, the very well-known mural at Flinders Street Station, she read that all the Venetian artists used glass from Murano. So she made Vic Rail buy Murano glass tiles to do the, <laughs> to do the mural at Flinders Street Station. <laughs> how, did the old, uh, how did the old public servants at Vic Rail cope with that? They fell in love with her. She charmed them, and they did it. They bought it. Yeah, they, they imported uh, Murano glass tiles. The exhibition's got a bit of everything. There's handwritten notes. There's photos, eight millimeter film, letters, awards, and all sorts of bits and pieces. Mm. How did it all get put together? And when she died, did you and your family have to pull everything together and sort through all? No, they've all got the wonderful, curator already. A wonderful director and, and curator. I mean, Jessica Bram, the director and Eleni, the curator. Uh, and this is in a funny sense, it, it, you know, it was postponed because of COVID. It gave us a lot more time to really curate and dig deeper into her, into her material. I mean, the Heidi Museum of Modern Art uh, actually have her archive, but then we found a lot of other stuff uh, that we also had. So we had that extra time to really curate it and tell Merkel's life story as well as her art story. And then they picked a lot of really major works of art, like the three biggest paintings she's ever done, for example, are included in the exhibition, as well as all this other stuff. And I think what the audience is finding fascinating is getting a glimpse of the person behind the art. Did your mother ever talk about the Melbourne? She, she arrived in Melbourne in 1951, very Anglo, grey conservative sort of city really mm. only starting to multiculturalism was you know, probably years off in, in a lot of ways did you ever talk about the sort of place she walked into in 1951 that she arrived on the boat from yep she said it was totally desolate so i mean my father said that you couldn't get coffee you could get a thing called chicory essence and you added hot milk to that. But they were very fortunate in that they very early on uh, in the 50s met John and Sunday Reed, who had Heidi and who were yeah. part of what we now call the Moderns group. And uh, Sidney Nolan painted his Ned Kelly series with the uh, um, outed Heidi. And yeah. in fact, when we sold the contents of Merker's apartment and, and some art, we found a Sydney Nolan tile that Sunday Reed had given Merker in 1956 and people said that he only ever did 17 or 18 of these tiles and 17 of them are in a museum collection. People said to me, how come you didn't know your mother had a Sydney Nolan? And I said, well, I never went through my mother's undies drawer, did I? <laughs> they found it wrapped up in, in very old lace at the back of her underpants drawer. <laughs> I mean, she was a hoarder. And uh, so very quickly they got involved with artists and then my father, being the businessman, realised there was no money in art and he loved good food. So they, they started off first, and this is in the exhibition at the Merca Cafe, and the, the footage is from 1956 and it has the neon sign outside the restaurant in Exhibition Street which says the Merca Cafe. And it's wonderful. It was the year the Queen visited uh, Australia and then John Percival is sitting in the window having a coffee and John Percival made all the cups for the Merca cafe and then my father opened the Balzac and got 
restaurant license one. And I always remember, you know, people forget my father actually enabled Merca to, uh, uh, to be able to have this wonderful life of making art and so on very early on. And the only arguments I remember was my father saying to my mother, you've got to stop taking money out of the till. You're listening to A Lap of Caulfield Park with our host, Ashley Brown. Talk to me about your parents. It's a complex relationship. I mean, they, mm. they said your father was certainly helped Merca with, with her art, but then uh, up getting divorced. How, how would you describe the relationship they had? Uh, well, it's, I mean, when you run a restaurant, you don't see a lot of your father in this case because mum looked after us as kids. And when my father was home, uh, we all had to be quiet because he had his afternoon nap. So when you run a restaurant, uh, you're working when everyone else is socialising. So we'd see a bit of our father on the weekend, but um, look, he was a wonderful man, but he was very devoted to the whole art thing and the food thing. So we didn't have a conventional upbringing, put it that way. I think they describe it in those days as bohemian. Um, but mum used to say, God, it was wild here. Everybody was drinking and wife swapping in the 50s. It might have been boring on the surface, but I gather, well, certainly in the circles they moved, it was quite wild. These days, we like to think of Melbourne, we like to think of ourselves as the capital of everything in Australia. We like to think of ourselves as the... Uh as the food capital, the entertainment capital, fashion capital, certainly the sporting capital, cultural the cultural capital as well. Do you think your Do you think your 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 parents can take some credit for Melbourne moving from that desolate place they found in 1951 to? Well, I'll quote you. I mean, I told you I'm obviously biased. So I'll quote you, Bailu Meyer, who was the son of the original Bayevsky Meyer, who started the Meyer Department Store. He said that my parents turned. Melbourne from a town into a city. I mean, uh, my father got the first restaurant license, certificate number one for his restaurant, the Balzac. And so, of course, every visiting celebrity, every local celebrity, everybody uh, of any note, uh, including Graham Kennedy, used to eat there every night before his show in Melbourne tonight. They made a huge contribution to the food thing. In fact, they were both knighted. Merca got a higher knighthood than my father. Uh, it's called a Chevalier. My father got the Chevalier. Mum got the Officier. The same year Merca got hers, uh, Meryl Streep and Elton John got the same award but from the French government. And they got it for spreading French culture in Melbourne. They certainly made a contribution. As I say, very few Jews got into, into the arts in the early days of immigration. Most, you know, went into the rag trade or into business, or but not a lot went into the arts. You know. Yeah, well, I think there was a need to try and build a life for yourself, and and that's it. The professions yeah. and business were certainly a way, probably say more than the arts, as a way to build a, a life for yourself and your family. Totally, totally. And so they became, you know, my father started a gallery in 1975, uh, full time with me. Started the gallery in '67 uh, on his own. I was still at school, um, and of course, all those people by then had made quite a lot of. Money, and they were all his clients. The Smorgans, the Beesons, the, you know, the names everybody knows, became great collectors. And, and, and of course, they all spoke the same language as my father. You know? so your brothers ended up in film and TV, Philip and Terry yeah, right. You stayed in the family business 
more or less. Why was that? Um, why did well, you my, decide to go to My father got me very young. I'd just done my matriculation. I was 17 and I had the choice of uh, university or my father came to me and said, uh, your mother and I are separating. I'm going overseas for three months while she moves out. Here, you run the restaurant. So at 17, 18 years old, I had 35 staff bulging till I thought this seems more interesting than university. So I decided to, uh, to, to, to say yes to that and, and forego university. So I ran the restaurant. He came back and said, this is all going really well. I'm going overseas again. And then <laughs> when he came back a month or so later, uh, he started the art gallery and uh, I helped him in the art. I was a, worked for him for 10 years and he said, one day this will all be yours. But of course, I was on son's wages and then he never would retire. So I said, look, I think I'll go and start my own gallery, Dad. So it was the classic. He lost a partner and gained a son. And uh, in those days, he was at the height of his artistic sort of powers and uh, believed in a bit of nepotism. And he used to buy a lot for other people from my gallery, which I might add now, all those things he bought have turned out to be gems for these collections. And then I got very involved in Indigenous art, which he sort of didn't sort of quite get Schwarz art, he called it. He didn't sort of get it. And he, he was very into European art and uh, American art, and he brought to Australia a lot of that art. But uh, uh, that's how I got into it. You know, worked for, I worked for my father and stayed in the industry. And then I, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever I've, I've heard the story, but uh, Merkel was once asked, what her advice to a young artist just starting out on their career would be. And Merkur said, oh, that's very simple. Just make sure very early on in your career you give birth to your own art dealer. <laughs> so I've had the delight of the last 30 years of solely representing my mother and she never had to worry about a thing, pay a bill or do anything. She could just focus on her art. And she, before she died, she thanked me profoundly for having looked after her and, and having made her art get to the level that it, it's, it's reached uh, through through exhibition, regular exhibitions, telling her work. So it's an amazing legacy she's left us. It's wonderful weight in life that she was able to just not, yeah, not to worry about that sort of thing, just be able to create mm. art. Well, what, P, you talk about people's productive career what people a lot of people don't get with Merkur was how long it was she basically made art for 70 years she got here when she was 20 and died at the age of 90 so that's a, a, a lot a lot of make years of making art what was the last work of art she had to eventually end up going into aged care but she had this burst of, uh, I mean, she was struggling with big paintings and my wife actually said maybe it's the scale so we went and bought her 24 canvases two foot by one and a half foot in the old language and um, she hit those with such gusto they were all completed within two weeks and that was her last body of work it was almost as though she knew she was about to she was going to have to stop painting uh, she didn't paint in in care um, they, they gave her the ultimate insult they asked her if she wanted to do coloring in <laughs> She said, no. she, no. said, she said, I don't do colouring in. <laughs> well, she, did she, did, do you not know who I am? Or did she... <laughs> oh, they all knew who she was. and uh, <laughs> But she said, I mean, I know there's been an inquiry with lots of recommendations, but you don't ask an artist if they want to do colouring <laughs> in. No, absolutely not. We're, we're just coming out, well, we're in the final stages, hopefully, of, of coming out of a global pandemic and mm. shut down the way we were. How did you... It, she would have definitely missed the social contact. Yeah. But she, she, she worked so much and what a lot of people don't 
sort of uh, get is that artists in their studios are in isolation for most of the time. You know, you've really got to like your own company to spend eight hours a day alone in, in your studio. And she loved being alone. She didn't want to travel. She had all the stuff she needed and wanted in terms of books, art material. I mean, she left basically an art shop here of materials, unused materials. She had everything she needed and she enjoyed her own company and she loved... I mean, the family joke was that she'd come in and say, you know, I've heard this for the last 50 years. I think I finally discovered the secret of painting. And, you know, that went on forever. And for an artist, you know, if you do discover whatever it is, this elusive secret, then you'd put down your brushes, you've done it. And of course, no artist ever discovers the secret of painting, which is how to bring to life something that's two-dimensional. Just to finish up the story, I mean, we've got this exhibition. Is it more of a story still to be told, do you think? Oh, I think they've done a very good job there's still a uh, i mean she's written her own autobiography there's always more to, to write um i'd never put a full stop on something like that and uh, we keep discovering i mean we are still sorting through Merca's uh, uh, works of art and 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 her memorabilia and and so on and we keep discovering new things you know letters from different artists she's got a a file of letters from probably every big name artist in australia you know, from you name it down um, so, no, the Merca story hasn't finished by far. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I think my grandchildren will still be dealing with this estate. All right, William, it's been wonderful to chat to you on, on the podcast. Uh, it, it's, a, it's such a rich life, so well celebrated, and uh, everyone should get themselves to the Jewish Museum. It's going to be on for a while, I think. Wonderful things is most museum shows are on for three months. This show's on until December, nine well, months. The real, there's just no excuse for anyone listening to this podcast not to get to the Jewish Museum at some stage. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. That was William Moira. He was talking about the Merca exhibition that is on now at the Jewish Museum of Australia. A lot of people going. Still got some time. It's actually going through until December 19, but uh, it is people are raving about it. An icon of our of our community, an icon of Melbourne, really. And uh, imagine the sort of place as we talk about in the podcast, the Melbourne she came to from Europe in 1951. Very different city then as to what it is now. As uh, as he said in the podcast, she's a you know not exactly an Orthodox Jew, but certainly a proud cultural Jew, and I think that's reflected in some of her work and and, and what the family does as well. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and please get to the exhibition if you can. As always, if you like this podcast, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and uh, Spotify, whichever else you listen to. Spread the word. We're always really interested to uh, hear also from who you think I should get on the podcast. The only criteria, they have to be from Melbourne, they have to be Jewish, and they don't have to, and they can't be a community leader or Jewish community professional. Apart from that, everyone's welcome to be on this podcast if you think they've got a good story to tell. If you think you've got a good story to tell, get in touch with me through social media on Twitter at hash brown, that's hash with an H, and brown with an E. Um, my book, AFL 2020, A Season Like No Other, is available from next Wednesday through Hardy Grant. It'll be in all the good bookshops around town, $32.99. Get in touch with me if you want to get a copy of it. I can even arrange to get a signed copy to you as well. So that's been my big project in the last few months, and I'm looking forward to sharing that book and the work that goes into it with all of you. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget 
to subscribe and pay attention to plus61j.net.au, your leader for online Jewish news, opinion, analysis, and commentary. Wonderful stuff happening from Israel, the States, Australia, and from around the world. So that has been it. Thank you for listening. Thanks, as always, to my gun producer, Dash Lawrence, for all his help in getting this podcast from my device to yours. Thank you for listening, and we will chat again next time we take a lap of Caulfield Park.